The street is where we create. We call it suburbanpreneurship. Mixing big company resources with an entrepreneurial spirit. This is Electric People. Electric People, welcome back. We have Damon West on the podcast today. So Damon was up at a speaking event for a couple of our sales regions up in Northern California. He has a best-selling book, 111 Ways to Be a Coffee Bean. Intriguing, I know. I first heard of Damon on a podcast that got sent around through some of our sales regions that he did with Ed Milet. He has a crazy story, and in this episode, we kind of hit the story in a roundabout way. So in kind of an anti-traditional way, I'm going to outline his story because then when you listen to the podcast and fill in the gaps. Essentially, he grew up in Texas, was an all-star football player, and football players in Texas just get treated different. There's a lot of privileges and very Friday night lights-y from what I gather. Got done with high school, went into a very successful career early in politics where he was working for a presidential candidate. He then got a job as a trader on Wall Street. Everything was looking good. And then working those long Wall Street hours, he was tired and kind of dragging and got introduced by a quote friend to crystal meth. He talks about how he was instantly hooked and how that drug just became a part of his life and within 18 months had lost everything. Family, job, relationships, home, literally was a slave to the drug. In order to support his habit, created kind of this underground criminal ring where they would go break into really nice houses and they would sell the property to fund their drug habits. He became notoriously known as the Uptown Burglar and they chased him for a really long time. Eventually, his life of crime ended by a flash grenade coming through his apartment, SWAT team putting a gun on the back of his neck, bringing him to jail, ultimately stood trial and got 40 years or something crazy. The jury absolutely hated him. It was, it was kind of an unprecedented punishment because you know there was no violence, never saw any of his victims. He's quick to own that he violated their sense of safety and their personal space, but pretty unprecedented charge for the nature of the crime. Before he goes into jail, his traditional and loving parents came and saw him in a holding cell, and he made a couple promises to his mom. And one of the promises was that essentially he would come back the person that they raised him to be. So when he was in jail, he wasn't to join any gangs. He wasn't to get any tattoos. And, you know, he was to come back the way that they raised him or not come back at all. So he had kind of this moment before he went into jail, kind of like a Shawshank Redemption style moment where he was talking to a serial criminal who had been in and out of the system multiple times. And he gave him some advice on how to navigate jail when he got in there. And he essentially told him that when he got in, everything in prison is about race. So a lot of our conversation is about race, if you wonder where that's coming from. So he told him that right when he got into to jail, he would have to choose his, quote, family or his gang. And he was telling this man that was talking to him that he's not joining a gang. And that person told him, the strongest man in prison walks alone, but here's how you have to do it. So he told him about what he would be faced with and the violence that he would have to endure in order to kind of earn the right to walk alone. And he essentially told him this story that's become his life mantra. I know it seems like I'm giving it away. I'm really not. But this is the, kind of the speech that he gave. And then a lot of our conversation based around you guys knowing this. 
So before he goes into jail, he asks Damon, he says, okay, you take a pot of boiling water and you drop a carrot in that water, what's going to happen to the carrot? And Damon said, well, the carrot's going to get soft. And he's like, that's right. Some people get dropped into prison and they get, they get some pressure and they get dropped into boiling water and immediately they get soft. He's like, you drop an egg into that boiling water, what's going to happen? He says, well, the egg's going to get hard. And he said to him, this is what happens to most people, that they come into prison, they get dropped in boiling water and they get, they get hard. They get really just defensive. They put up their walls and their heart kind of hardens. And he says, well, if you drop a coffee bean into boiling water, what happens? And he said, I, I, don't, I don't know what you're getting at. And he basically told Damon, he said, well, if the coffee bean gets dropped into water, you have to change the name of water because it's no longer water, it's coffee. A coffee bean changes its environment. And he says, go in there and, and be a coffee bean. So he talks in this episode about his experience with life, his experience with development, his experience with prison and reform and coming around. And he is an incredible speaker. If you're listening to this and you're, you hire speakers, Damon West brought so much energy to our teams, had so many applicable takeaways that it was a real treat to get to know him. It's an honor to call him a friend. And I'm really excited for you all to listen to Damon West. I think the thing that's interesting to me is when I look at like the prison system, I don't know much about it other than watching documentaries yeah. and I you know, know people that have experienced it and hearing you speak about it and stuff. You, you know, you say that if you, if you took the intentionality or the regulations off of society that we would end up in a, in a tribal prison-like system where people self-segregate and stuff like that. But I wonder if, like, do you really think the people in prison really want it that way? Or do you think that they think they want... Like, no one's happy in there, right? Like, um, I, No, I think that, that it's a good question. Do they... Does everybody really want it that way? I think the answer is no, but... That's the way it functions to where there's less war going on. Um, like, I, I know guys that, that went into the Aryan Brotherhood, and they really don't buy into all the stuff the Aryan Brotherhood pumps out, the, this total white right and all this other stuff. They don't believe in that. They got into it because they were scared to death when they got into prison that they were going to get raped or stabbed or killed by groups of other races, you know, the Crips or the Bloods or whatever. They got into it out of fear. They let fear guide their decision, but they don't have that in their hearts. That right. was never in their hearts. Yeah. But fear is what creates that world in there. And you look at what's going on out here in the world. If the brakes came off of society, the guardrails, where we say, hey, look, you know, no, everybody is equal. And we all, you know, diversity is our strength, which is what I believe, which is what we believe. Mm -hmm. But if you took that away and you said, hey, that's no longer the, the mantra anymore, then the fear mongers, the people that sell fear and thrive on fear, which is people that like to have power, because a lot of people that get to power, they get to it through fear. They would pump out the fear of the others. And the fear of the others, I think, would win out over all the other, you know, reasoning and, and sanity that you can try to throw at it. Fear of the others wins out. And you see it going on now. The guardrails and, and the the brakes aren't taken off society all altogether, but you see all sides do that. Mm -hmm. All sides pump fear of the others. Have you heard um, much about Mike Tyson's uh, experience in prison? Mm -mm. So um, he's he, he's coffee bean man. He's he's your kind of guy. So when Tyson went to prison, he um, he like they, the the story is that the violence stopped while he was there, which is kind of crazy because well it was like mid nineties. So there's a lot happening. Like yeah. you know like or early nineties was like. 
It was a wild time, right? That's it's, that's Rodney King. It was King. more dangerous then than whenever in prison, especially when I when I went prison. Well, was, and it's especially like that's like the the like gangs are thriving at that point, and, right. and violence is crazy. Um, but the story has been told uh, where he was sitting in there and he was watching. Uh, they were watching something on TV. It might have been riots or something like that. And and you would think that people would want to like try to knock out the champ. Like, oh, you think you're tough and like like make his life miserable in there. But they were all watching TV and there was something happening and he like stood up and said something like, Hey, like do you think that they care about us? Like pointing the TV. He's like, We are all that we have. Like those people out there, they don't care about us. So we might as well like look out for each other. And they say like at least the unit that he was in when he was there, like the violence kind of stopped, which is crazy. Cause like at that time you would think that someone like that didn't have the tools. Like he didn't have a background like you, which I'm sure we'll get into, but I mean, he came from a really broken home, a drug addict, prostitute mother, right. Learned to fight, got love from fighting in alleys, like kids that were older than him got picked up by you know, custom auto and then Don King and like just passed around and given like millions of dollars and all sorts of love for hurting people, but then got into prison and was able to like change the environment around him. Yeah, no. And, and I can see that because people in there, you know, it's like this people generally want to follow people that in, in life. Generally people want to be led. They're looking for leaders. They're looking for leaders. And in the absence of good leadership, people will follow a bad leader. If there's no good leader, they'll follow whatever's in front of them. It's like, Interesting. It's like a, if a thirsty man is in the desert and he sees a mirage, if he's desperate enough and thirsty enough, he may try to drink that sand. And the sand will kill him. You can't drink sand. Sand will kill you if you drink it. That's what happens to people, I think, spiritually and emotionally when they don't have a leader, they have a mirage. They go after the mirage and it eats them up from the inside out. But when you have a true leader come in and step in, people want to follow that and they'll follow that whatever form it is. Um, to hear that Mike Tyson did that, I think one of the things he probably had going for him was growing up on the streets and seeing the underworld that, you know, hey, he's right, man. None of those people on TV care about what's going on inside that prison. They're not thinking about it. They're not thinking about that. Yeah. I've heard I've heard something similar when I was in prison. You know, these guys get very serious about their sports. They're they're the Dallas Cowboys, for example. You know, I'm in Texas prison. Dallas Cowboys are a big deal. But there's guys in there that are like, hey man, why don't you go with me to this AA meeting instead of sitting around watching this game this Sunday afternoon? Because Jerry Jones doesn't care about you. Jerry Jones is not, he doesn't care whether or not you watch this game today, but your sobriety depends on you going to this AA meeting. And mm -hmm. the guy would be like, okay, yeah, you're right. I'm going to go to the meeting. You know, they I've just seen. They need that push. Or that they need that shit. push. And to understand that, that, you know, this thing that you care about so much doesn't care about you back. Mm -hmm. You know, so what are you going to feed? Are you going to feed something that can actually enrich you? Or are you going to sit around and watch TV and get so caught up in that that you'll fight people over gambling debts in prison? Man, that's so crazy. It, it, it makes me wonder, like, if, I mean, how wildly out of place you must have been there, unless there's lots of people that think like you and just got caught up. But in the unit that you were in, I mean, you were in like the life, what do you call it, like section? The, the life sentence part of the, uh, the Mark Styles unit is a maximum security level five prison. Level five being that's the highest security level there is. Um, and it houses life sentence people fresh out of the court system. There's only like 11 or 12 units in Texas that can take someone with a fresh life sentence. And it's because of the security level with the guard towers, the fences, the different razor wire. Um, they have different levels of security. But someone with a life sentence, you get banished to this whole life sentence section where you have to do 
a guy like me that had non-aggravated crimes, I got to do five years in the life sentence building. Someone with an aggravated life sentence, I mean, someone's physically hurt in their crime, they've got to do 10 years in the life sentence building before they can even leave the building. You can leave the building to go to the to the rec yard, which is on the building, so that doesn't count. The chow hall, which is almost on the building, not too far away. You can go to the chapel, and you can go to the law library. But those are the only places you can go. You can't go to any ed- educational classes. You can't have a job. Oh, really? You can't just sit around the pod all day. Yeah. I mean, and that's the that was the challenge of prison too. Is I'm in a room with 48 people that no one can leave this room. We're stuck around this room looking at each other all day long. It's not the biggest pl- space in the world. How often do new people come in? Like if there's 48 in there, like you would get to know everybody. Oh, they well. would they would transfer people out from from time to time. Anytime that someone got into some serious trouble, they get rolled out of there and sent to solitary confinement or something like that. And you get a new guy that comes in. But generally on the life sentence building, everybody gets to know everybody because this is like, this is your home. This yeah. is life. And that was another thing. I mean, people made this, that you want to make it your home. Jail was a very different experience. Jail is where you go before you get sentenced to prison. Prison is where you go after you get convicted. Mm-hmm. So jail is pre This is for, because this is something I didn't understand until yeah, I went. Yeah. Jail is before you get convicted. Prison is for after you get convicted. So jail was very different. Jail was a very transient place in Dallas County Jail. There wasn't a lot of violence in Dallas County Jail because people weren't there for the long haul. This isn't their life, you know? A lot of those people are hoping to go home, beat their case. If they, if they don't misbehave too bad in jail, the judge will look lenient on their deal and maybe give them probation. Or maybe I almost give them- thought it'd be opposite. Like people are like, hey, I'm only here for the weekend or for the month. I'm just nah. going to get out. And then you would think that if you're sitting in a room with 48 people and you might be with them for 20 years, you'd be like, you know what? I don't want to fight you for 20. Like that's, that strikes me as backwards. That's why you show your teeth and you show your might early on. It's a very predatory environment. Prison is all about predatory environments, all about predators, man. Yeah, I could understand, again, my ignorance, but I could understand that if it was a three to five year, but I would almost think like, hey, secret of like the life sentence area is actually they're kind of tired. They just want to ride it out. They don't want to fight their whole life, but no. Sometimes, and sometimes like I lived on one pod there's 48 of us on a pod. 12 of the guys on this one pod had life without parole, the LWAPs. Guys that'll never see parole, there's no hope that they'll ever go home. This is like, this was, they, they're the nuclear bombs if they choose to be, because right. there's nothing that can set off their nothing parole. To lose. Nothing to lose. As a matter of fact, I had to talk to a couple of the guys that had life without parole that were younger guys, because they're coming in at 19, 20, 21 years old. Yeah, dude, they're going to serve 60 calendar years. And that's for real. Life without parole, that's not like there's no chance, there's no good behavior. Like, life there's no way to mollify that. that. No, there's, there's no way. There's, there's no mitigation. That's it, man. So I can't even imagine. Yeah, I mean, you come in at 19 years old, like this, this there's this kid named Redneck. I mean, uh, nice name, but uh, so Destiny was white. Yeah, he's <laughs> white kid. So Redneck is like 19 years old. He's got life without parole. And I'm asking him one day. I'm like, you know, Redneck, why? You know, why didn't you just let them give you the death penalty? He's like, oh, my mom, my mom didn't want me to get the death penalty. I was like, dude, your mom's gonna die one day. You're not. They're gonna keep you. Alive. You're like a science project to them because now that you're in prison, you're a ward of the state. They've got to, you know, if you get sick, they're gonna heal you. If you get cancer, they're going to try to cure you. You know, they're going to, they're going to keep you alive with the best medicine around because they have to, because you're a ward of the state. There's people that get sick all the time. There's 80 something year old guys in there walking around with walkers that have been there for 30 years. They're not going anywhere. They're going to die. You're like, just let them go. Like, what are they going to do? 
you know? Yeah, but I mean, they're, I mean, I've seen, I saw a guy with, you know, with one leg just to hop around, you know, and, you know, this guy doesn't look like he's a threat to anybody, but I mean, you go to, you do the crime, you do the time, you hear that all the time. The thing about prison that I thought was so interesting, you talked about, you know, I kind of stuck out. I didn't really have a good comparison for it until I got home from prison. My dad, the first week I was home, he's like, hey, Damon, sit down and watch all these prison movies with me. Tell me who got who got it right. So, man, we're watching Cool Hand Luke. <laughs> hey, that's like a whole YouTube awesome. thing now. Yeah. You could have, yeah. like, recorded a video. They do that. They're like, you know, like, pro football players watch a pro football movie, and they point out all the things where they're like, nah, it's not like that. Oh, really? So yeah. yeah. So you're doing that with – I saw a thing the other day where pro surfers watch Point Break. Oh yeah, and they're like, uh, yeah, no, it's not like that. So you're doing this with your dad. Point Break was a great movie. It's by a the great way. movie. <laughs> Love Point Break. Do you know it's actually the exact same plot of Fast and Furious One? The exact same plot. But you, with surfers and Ray yeah, Parker. you got like these like this like handsome undercover cop that enters this like criminal underbelly that fuels like their extreme sports lifestyles with petty crime. Falls in love with the girl, lets the guy go at the end. It's the same movie. Anyway. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen Fast and Furious 1, but I've seen Point Break. Yeah, man. so sometimes. The point is like, shit, I've already seen it. No, well, I mean, I'll, bet, I'll bet there's more than just Fast and Furious. But anyway, Point but you, Break. But you, you like that. I mean, Johnny Utah was the, the quarterback's yeah. name. You're Utah guy, right? Yeah, so. we all, we all, everybody likes Point Break. Yeah, yeah, right? Johnny Utah. That was Johnny that's Utah. Roo's character. Yeah, yeah he was a quarterback. That's, right. yeah. <laughs> that's so funny. So you're so, watching it with your dad. So watching it with my dad, we go through all the movies. Cool Hand Luke. But we get to Shawshank, man. Yeah. And Shawshank got it right. Whoever whoever advised on that, whoever was on that role with Stephen King's book to become a movie, got it right. Shawshank was prison, man. That They got the culture. I mean, it's you get the race part because you get further up the north, the race isn't as big as it is in the south. What, what year did the Shawshank Redemption portray? Was that modern? It came out in the 90s. And I saw it in the 90s, but it didn't register. You know, you see something at different at one point in your life. There's not a life experience to attach to that. But it didn't take place in a previous time period. It was it was present day when the movie was made. Well, no, it took it took place in the 40s or 50s. Oh, 40s, 50s. Okay, yeah, it took place go. in the 40s, 50s. I saw it when it came out in the 90s, but yeah. I mean, it, to me, it didn't mean anything. It was a great movie. I mean, you know, Morgan Freeman, Tim Robbins, this guy escapes from prison. I didn't even get the meaning of it whenever I was, you know, 20 years old or 21 when it came out. Excuse me, but whenever I. I watch it again in 2015 when I'm 40 years old and I just got out of prison serving a life sentence. It took on a whole different meaning. And Andy Dufresne, his character was a lot like I was in prison. Because remember, Andy was this odd duck. He was a banker, you know. He didn't look like anybody. He didn't speak like anybody. He didn't fit in. And that yeah, was Yeah, and the crime kind of didn't fit maybe the punishment and to be with all those the people that were there for, like, real stuff. Right. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm in there for organized crime to be, commit a bunch of burglaries. They're property crimes around meth. And look, hey, I'm good for it. I did the crime. Uh, 65 years is is very extreme for my crime. In fact, the parole board, they when I interview with parole, this is you know right before I get out, they let me know, hey, you got too much time. And which was, I'm glad they said it. And they didn't. I mean, you know, because here's the deal, you in Mer in America. You, juries sentence people for one of two reasons. Either they're, they're scared of somebody or they're mad at somebody. And they were mad at me. They weren't scared of me. They were That's mad. That's interesting. I've never heard that before. Oh, they're mad. I mean, they were, they were very angry. Just emotionally deciding people's yeah, lives. Yeah, here's this guy that had it all, yeah. very arrogant. Yeah. I'm, you know, and, and I did it. Even more than that, 
When I'm in Dallas County Jail, I'm on the jail phones trying to get myself out. I know they're listening, but I'm trying to have a fun. I'm like Jerry Lewis having a telethon on this thing. I'm like calling dope dealers and, and everybody from the underworld. You owe me this money for this job we did. Bring me that 20000 up here. They're playing these tapes back at trial. I sound oh. like a mafia boss, man. Yeah. Bring me my money. You know, it's, it's just like it is horrible. I'm the worst defendant in the world. And a jury looks at me like, dude, we're going to get rid of you. And they yeah. did. So I get out and I watch the Shawshank. And I'm like, okay, this is like... I can relate to Andy Dufresne. I mean, everything except getting raped in the sh- in the in the uh, washroom, which is, but I almost got raped in the shower. I mean, yeah. this guy comes after me. Carlos gives me the heads up. I beat him with a fan motor. I mean, it's it literally Carlos saved my life. And for that, I take care of Carlos for the rest of his life. Every money I put a hundred dollars in his books, and every month I put a hundred dollars in his books. Um, you know, I talk to him on the prison phone all the time. Carlos is like a brother to me. Yeah. He'll never want for anything. He won't get out for a long time. But I'm watching Shawshank. And this is what I talk to people about a lot. Whatever, because everybody's seen Shawshank. It seems like you've seen it. You've seen it, right? Mm-hmm. It's been a long time. I should revisit it. It's one of the best yeah, it's movies great. ever made. Not just prison movies, but movies. Period. But I ask people all the time: When you watch Shawshank, what's it? Who's who's this a story about? Because Red Morgan Freeman's character narrates the story, and he's talking about yeah. Andy Dufresne. He's mm-hmm. talking about this guy named Andy Dufresne that showed up in the prison, and. It seems like the whole thing is about Andy Dufresne, but after living in prison and seeing that world in there, I don't view it as being Andy's story. I, be, I view it as being Red's story. And here's why I think it's Red's story. Because Red is a dead man. Red has lost hope. If you've lost hope, you're dead. You have nothing left in life. So hope, hope is everything, man. But inside of a prison, I lived in that world in prison where so many have lost hope. This is the whole thing. When you, you, you know, if you're desperate for leadership, you follow the bad leader. When you lose hope, you'll grab onto anything that looks like it could be hope. And this is when you know you get into the gangs, the drugs, whatever it is, whatever it looks like can give you hope, even if it's just temporary, you grab onto that because a world without hope is not a world worth living in. How did you do that? I guess that's my thing I've always thought. Of. I mean, I obviously love your story, everything, but it's like when those darkest times, like when you're just, there's no hope. You know what I'm talking about. Like you just got beat up for the what, seventh time. And you know you got to go fight the guy the next day. And you're just, there's no hope. And you've let your parents down. And there's just, there's this mountain against you. Like what pulled you through those dark moments? Like what advice do you have for us that, you know, the people that are facing those big headwinds, like what, what, what pulls them through? What pulls you through? Yeah, a few things. One, I had a lot of support from my family. So they had never given, they believed in me. I had people that would tell me those four words, I believe in you, which is important. Every human being needs to hear that, especially people in sales. You know, in any industry, people need those four words. My faith, my faith pulled me through it a lot. But look, I, you know, faith, faith is, is it's like workouts, man. Workout, if you're really working out in the gym, it's nasty. It's gross. I mean, you're grunting, you're farting. I mean, you're you know, you're spitting. It's it just, it's nasty. A real workout. Faith is like that, man. It's not always just smooth sailing. You know, hey, Jesus, we're good. And no, I mean, I went through this bout in the first couple of months where I'm angry at God. I'm mad. I mean, yeah. and I'm and I'm, I'm ready to kill myself at one point. I go to the church service and I'm like, you know, after they go to church, I'm gonna come back and hang myself. And this lady, there was a volunteer chaplain lady, Miss D. Ms. D pulls me aside. She's like, hey, I can see something's bothering you today. What's wrong? And I'm like, what's wrong is, is you know, I can't do this anymore. And I'm just going to, I'm throwing in the towel. I'm, I'm done. I'm going to kill myself. And she's like, you can't give up on God. The minute she mentioned God, I got so mad. This is six weeks into prison. The minute she mentions God, I'm so mad. I'm angry. I'm like, what do you mean, God? 
How can God create a place so wicked and evil and sinister as this prison? And I'm mad. I'm going off on I'm going off on her by way of going off on God. And she's calm, man. She's just, I mean, she's like 84 years old. She works in a prison. She sees this Seen all the time. Seen it all before. Yeah, so she's, she's like, like, hey, look, Mr. West, you know, <laughs> it's okay. It's just, she's angry with God. She said, you are not the, You think you're the first person to get angry with God? The Bible's full of people that got angry with God. But she said they all come back to God because they learn what the secret to faith is. And I'm like, Miss D, then what's the secret to faith? I need to know that. She told me this six weeks into prison. She said, if you're going to pray, don't worry. And if you're going to worry... Don't pray. She said, you, you just can't, you can't do both. You're either going to let God drive the car or you're going to drive the car. She said, but the last time you drove it, you parked it inside of a prison. So really kind of think about who's going to get those keys today. And it was like, okay, this is the thing that if I have faith that I'm going to survive this, if I have faith that I can get through this, then I got to tr- quit trying to like do God's job, let God do his you know, if you're going to get me through it, I'll, I'll work on the things I can, I can do, like what I think, what I say, what I feel, what I do. Those are the few things I can work on. And it was really letting go of this idea of control that gave me more control in my life. You know, it's letting go of the, of the things that I'm trying to balance over here that I have really no effect on, but they're taking me away from the things I can affect. And that was like a big pivotal moment for me inside that prison. But back to the Shawshank story of why I think it's Red story. Morgan Freeman's character is narrating the whole movie, and he's talking about this guy named Andy Dufresne, but it's Red's story because this. Red had given up hope. Red lost hope. Red was dead because hope was gone. Like whenever Brooks got, he got out and he, and he killed himself. Brooks paroled out of prison after like 51 years in Shawshank, gets out. He lasts about two weeks, writes a letter to the guys in Shawshank and tells them that he's hanging himself. He can't take it out in the free world. Man, they're reading this letter, and Red turns to Andy, and Red says, man, I, I can't take it. I can't handle it out there, Andy. I'm an institutional man. I, I can't ever survive in the free world. In fact, Red says those words to Andy. He said, hope is a dangerous thing. Imagine mm-hmm. living in a world where you think hope could be dangerous to you because you've been let down so much by hope and the wrong things. But what did Andy say to Red? He said, get busy living or get busy dying. And that was like... That was the thing. Andy is the guy that saved Red's life because he brought life into the prison. And that was the role that I played when I was in there because I changed the way people saw their their circumstances in life. Like, hey, you know what? You may not be getting out, but you may be here in this prison to impact somebody that's going to walk through that door that's going to live in here in this prison. And their kids may be impacted by the stuff you teach them. So you've got to be able to share that message. You know, even if you're here for the rest of your life, you've got purpose in life. And that was one of the things I instilled in them. When I go to prisons to this day in Texas, especially my old prison, which I live four miles away from, man, I, I get to go into my old prison anytime I want now. I've got mm. access into it. I jog by it. I see the guys in the rec yard. I wave at them when I'm jogging by. I'm on this side of the gate now, which is the where I want to be. But, man, when I go in there. So the same guys you're waving at. Absolutely. Same guys I'm waving at. And when I go back into the prison, They'll say the same thing every time. They're like, dude, you said you would be back, and you came back. You're the only person we've ever seen that said they would come back, and you came back. And, and I tell them, man, it's my job to smuggle hope back into this prison. People want to smuggle all kinds of things. They want to smuggle mm-hmm. dope. They want to smuggle cell phones. You see it on the news all the mm-hmm. time. I smuggle hope. I'm a smuggler of hope, and I smuggle hope back into prison. But I was smuggling it in back then, and I smuggle it in now. My favorite place to go and speak 
you know, as much as this, the corporate stuff is great, I love it, and it pays well. It, it provides a great life for my family, for me, and other things I can spread it out and be a servant leader because now I have resources. My favorite place to be doesn't pay a dime financially. It's back in prisons. I love going back into prisons, man. And that's what my, one of my long-term goals is, is to speak for, you know, five years, ten years, and be able to pull myself off the road and go into prisons more. It, because when I go into a prison, every man or woman inside that prison – is listening and hanging over work. Your crowd today was amazing. There's 500 people in there. The, the energy is off the chain. But I promise you, not all 500 were locked in. You know, maybe 450 because it was locked in and they were loud and they were on there hanging every word. But you can have people that zone out every now and then. That's just normal human nature for an hour and a half presentation. In a prison, there's 100% of that room. They're not going anywhere. They're locked in you because they want what I've got. And if they're willing to do what I've done and they'll take the suggestions that I have to give them, then I can show them how to get that peace and serenity in their lives, too. I get to bring hope to the hopeless. Best I, can't job remember, I can't remember if Ed Milet said this when you were on his podcast, but that you obviously should have a podcast. Do you have one? I don't. Well, it, and it should that. be called the Hope Smuggler. Hope Smuggler Podcast. You like it's that? It's a great yeah, name. I love it. I remember we interviewed Tim Ballard. Do you know who Tim Ballard is? Yeah. He, Underground Railroad. Um, he had a podcast called Slave Stealer which is a great name for a podcast, right? But Hope Smuggler. I also had the thought, like, it would have been such a cool thing. Like, I'm so fascinated by the entire story, but you probably have a lot of people that want to hear about the prison part. But, like, I'm so fascinated with those people in there because it's like, with the time that you spent there, you probably got to know them. You probably got to understand maybe a little bit of why they are the way they are and what landed them there. But that would be the most interesting interview series ever. If someone with like your level of presence could interview people in there and help like tell their story, because I'll bet you somewhere, if you dig deep enough, is somebody that you have a lot of love and empathy for that just got twisted up or, or kind of went the wrong way. How, how many of the people in your in your pod are people that maybe like you or you're like, you just don't belong here? I mean, probably everybody, if you go back far enough. But people like I hear your story and it's like razor wire and and, you know, all of these extreme measures to make sure that you don't like act out. And it's like, well, it's Damon in there. It's not like you're not like a I don't I, I only know you this way, but you don't seem like a big threat to me. You right. know what I mean? Like how many of the group is like, wow, like how did you land here? Dude, great question. And it is the question that gave me hope when I was in there. Whenever a warden, a captain, a major, a volunteer in the chapel would come up to me and say, West, you don't fit into this place, man. You don't belong here, man. What's your story? What happened to you? Mm -hmm. Best thing, best question that could ever be asked because that lets me know that the efforts I've made to not assimilate into this world completely. I live in that world. I have to be part of that world. There has to be some assimilation but I haven't become part of that world. That world hasn't sucked me in all the way. Best question can be ever be asked because that means I'm, I'm still keeping the standard that I've put on myself to be above what I'm around. Be, not just for me, but for the other people around me to show them that it is possible. I mean, not many people go into the situation at my age. And my age was the big thing with the gangs too. Had I have been three or four years older, I wouldn't have to do any of the fighting that I had to do. But I'm How still, old were you when you went in? 33 when I walked in the door. But I was still gang recruiting age. I'm at the high end of gang recruiting age. But if you walk in the door at 40, no one 
no one's going to bother you you're as long as, as, long as you, and, yeah as you're an old guy as long as you mind your own business and stay out of the way and don't get anybody else's drama then you're fine oh i didn't know that so oh, you yeah. went in at like the worst time because it's the worst like, time would be like if you're like 20 man 20 because oh, really? then you have a life of it and you're that's yeah the i mean you're just what? i mean and you're just a kid you have no life experience i mean you know jackson is telling me in dallas county jail he's telling me things that a lifetime of winning and losing i can understand you don't have to win all your fights but you got to fight all your fights yeah. you know that made sense to me. I'm like, okay, I'm going to go in there and I'm going to lose a lot. But I'm going to just keep showing up because you're saying I don't have to win. Um, at 20 years old, that doesn't make sense because I got to win. I got to, you know, that's yeah. the competitor. That's your, that's you, your. If you're not, if you're not a winner, you're a loser, yeah. you know. So, but that's not truth. It's not a zero-sum game. You know, so much of life is showing up, you know, because you don't win all the time. You get your, you get your butt knocked down. Yeah. But whenever people would ask me that question, that would reinforce to me that, hey, I'm, I'm doing it right. And it's like, hey, God, cool. We're on the right path. This is still going the right way. Um, they see it. You know, I don't have a mirror that I can really look in and see that inside that place. But whenever other people would say that, that was my mirror. Hmm. I was sitting next to um, our CEO, Mary Powell, and she came in. And uh, she originally had a couple meetings scheduled and as she was sitting next to me, she was like changing meetings because your 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 speech. No way! Are you serious? <laughs> your speech starts out with a bang. I mean, you have this two minute intro video. And we probably need to back up and like tell the abbreviated yeah, version I'm of sure. the story for the people that weren't in the room today. Uh, <laughs> you talked to four five hundred of us. There's four thousand, so we're gonna have to like backtrack and tell some story. But um, she was like, "What's what's his story?" And I was like, "And the funny thing is, we're talking about Shawshank Redemption." I was like, "He kind of had this like Shawshank Redemption experience." where he got counseled by like this like older wiser guy and i had talked about like that's what i took away from your podcast with ed milet is the you don't have to win all your fights which we do door-to-door sales i mean the correlations are so direct right and we you know we run leadership groups and like whatever so but i had said he kind of had this like wiser guy like kind of help him and like use some advice to like coach him through the experience so funny like full circle i'm sure people tell you that all the time but now maybe back up and um, we'll do an intro too and give it like an abbreviated thing so you don't have to tell your story in the same way you always do. But, you know, how you grew up, how you landed in prison and, and maybe Mr. Jackson. Yeah. yeah look, I, best place starts from the beginning, man. I came from this great family in southeast Texas. I grew up in a town called Port Arthur, Texas, which is down where Louisiana and Texas touch. It's the population of Port Arthur, Texas. Back when I grew up there, it was 55,000. Probably, well, so it's big. Probably, well, it's probably 35,000 now. It's small. It's shrunk. There's no jobs there anymore. It's a very oh. decimated inner city kind of thing. It's going the other way. I thought it yeah. would have grown. <laughs> but no, people have moved out. The you know the flight from there, the people that have been able to move out, move out. I mean, and look, my parents moved out of Port Arthur after I graduated high school. I have one. You know, I have a little brother that was behind me, five years behind me, but... After I graduated in 94, they were like, hey, man, it's time for us to go. Because Port Arthur, you know, has seen better days. And it's unfortunate. I love my hometown. My hometown raised me and made me who I am. I don't think my story is the same, by the way, if I don't grow up in Port Arthur. Port Arthur is a very inner city, very black, very urban, very uh, blue-collar type of place. A lot of refineries in that area. But it was a giant melting pot of a city that I was so fortunate to grow up in. Came from two great parents. Um, my mother my father, for example— this summer they're going to celebrate 55 years of being married you know so i mean think about that i mean how many people have that going for them i didn't come from a broken home or a split home or anything i have no excuses where that goes i I had everything man every opportunity you know grades were good uh athleticism through the roof i was a great athlete three-year starting quarterback for a 5a school 
Division one college scholarship to North Texas. By the time I was and, like, 20. And people treating you different around town. Like I've, I've, I grew up in the Northwest and I didn't come from like competitive like team sports. So whenever I see like people in Texas getting special treatment or like as high school kids, it blows my mind. But it's you, really like that. Oh, absolutely, man. I was just talking to a friend of mine uh, last night. We're having dinner at his house in Silicon Valley. And his, his son is like 17, plays football. But football in Northern California is different. They're like, they right. don't even get to play with the, the lights on Friday night because the yeah. neighbors complain about the yeah. light pollution. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, dude. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, and dude, you're like, light pollution. Dude, you come to Texas with some kind of complaint about light pollution for a Friday night football game. You're going to have to find a new place to live. They're yeah. going to burn your house down. <laughs> There's right. your light pollution. Yeah. <laughs> but, That's crazy. but in Northern California, Silicon Valley, this kid's saying, man, I, I would just love to like experience what y'all get to experience in Texas under, under the lights, man. Man, on the Friday nights, man. And adults know your name and all that stuff. Around. Oh, yeah. Like, Not only that, man. Look, but I was, you know, I was I had a lot of character issues. And I got into some bad behaviors like drinking and smoking pot, stuff like that, partying. I love the role of being the quarterback where you're the most popular guy and everybody knows, the girls know you. Yeah. Loved everything about it and, and how many ways I could just abuse it. If I got pulled over, man, if I got in trouble, you know, I'm the quarterback. They let me go. I mean, this happened. That wow. blows my mind. They, yeah, they happened. Did that happen all the time? Uh, probably four times within my city where I lived. Um, in the neighboring towns, they know you too, and they don't. I mean, it's like that's so bad for a kid, right? Oh, like, it's, it's terrible, man. Like that it's an entitlement behavior. <laughs> yeah, we, we learned this entitlement behavior around sports. It was it was terrible for me. But I, I try to make sure that I don't rail on it too much, where people think, well, you know, you're passing off the responsibility and the uh, the culpability to sure. to them. No, it's it's on me. But yeah, did I get away with everything? Yes, absolutely, man. And do football players get that kind of treatment in Texas? Yeah, I. You know, social media has probably changed a lot about how much special treatment you can get, preferential treatment. Because, man, thank God we didn't have social media back then. Or people filming stuff everywhere you went or whatever. Oh my God! Can you imagine? Can you imagine? I mean, would you, somebody, be in, would you be in the role you're in if they no, had every single bit of film of everything would. you did? No. Or the things, even the things that you would just say, like, and, and also like sound bites and taking things out of context. I was, um, we'll get back to this, but I was watching, there's this movie, the documentary on Hulu called Kid 90. Have you heard of this? No. It's uh, Soleil Moon Fry, the girl that played Punky Brewster. Yeah. Remember Punky Brewster yeah, back yeah. in the 80s? Um, and when she was like 12, 13, 14, she carried like an old high eight like video camera around. And so she has people like Leonardo DiCaprio and Matt Dillon and like all these like super famous people when they were kids before social media on film. And Mark Paul Gossler, who played Zach Morris in Saved by the Bell, was talking on this documentary. And he said, what you see in her film is a camera would turn on and they would light up and be themselves. But he's like, he said, you know, just recently I was at a restaurant with my family and somebody took out a camera. And he's like, my brain immediately went to, what was I just doing that could be used against me? Oh my God, But yeah. he's like, it wasn't like that back in the day. And so you get this whole documentary of like people being themselves, but now a camera comes on and you're like, you know better. Yeah. So imagine like, we didn't grow up like that. I mean, I grew up, I graduated in 2000. So it's like the fact that like people didn't just have a video camera of you fighting with your girlfriend in the quad in front of the whole high school or whatever. You're like, all those things are like right. Friday night, like, like parking lot fights or just things like that that it doesn't exist anywhere i can't imagine having that now and the cancel know? culture was not around like right. back then like it is now and look man i'll be one of those people i wrote a book about cancel culture and racism at the same time called the locker room came out last year became a bestseller but 
it talks about both of those two very difficult topics, but the cancel culture has gone too far in America. And I'll tell you why. There's a difference between holding someone accountable and holding someone hostage. And right now, yeah, everybody in America point. feels like they're being held hostage by this thing called the cancel culture. And one of the things about my story that is unique to it is that, look, man, I get to go a little bit outside the cancel culture for a white guy. Think about the stuff I talked about there today. Sure. You know, yeah. I actually I'm, had that thought. Yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm sitting there talking about race and I'm talking about you know how the division of race goes inside of a prison and, and having to survive in that. But here's the deal: I I experienced it. I, I fought Nazis. I fought Crips. I fought Bloods for the right to be able to tell that story. You know, because otherwise I'm just like everybody else that just just goes in and conforms to the racial dynamic inside that prison. But my mom has told me I can't do that. I can't become something they won't recognize, which they didn't raise me to be a racist. And I learned a lot about race. Is it cool if I go here? Sure. Okay. I learned about a lot about race inside of a prison. This is when you're not going to have a lot of white guys come on and say the stuff that I'm about to say. And I'm not going to go anywhere inappropriate. What I'm saying is, is this racism is about the imbalance of power. And in order for racism to exist, there has to be that imbalance. It means one race is going to have more power over another race. Um, the, the race that's in power, by the way, they can, they can write laws. Now, these laws can affect the school you go to, the kind of America you grow up in, the neighborhoods you live in. And in America, for the most part, white people have always had that power. That's what racism is. When a white friend tells me, hey, Damon, that person over there, that person of color is being racist or saying something racist, no. What my friend is talking about is prejudice. Prejudice looks like racism, but has no power attached to it. They're, they look very, very much the same, prejudice racism, but there's no okay. power attached to it. And white people can absolutely feel prejudice. We can all, everybody, can, every group can feel prejudice. But it's very difficult for a white person to say they've experienced racism because, again, that's a power thing. You're in the power structure just by the way you're born. Yeah. But I can. I have. Because as a white person, I lived in a world for seven years and three months where being white was no longer the advantage, where the color of my skin was no longer the acid. It was the liability that I was born into, right? Mm -hmm. So for seven years and three months, I get dipped into a world where whites were not in power anymore. In fact, Jackson told me, blacks have the power in prison. It's a total shift in dynamic of everything you've experienced in life. Get ready for it because they're in power now and you're going to feel that. And I did. Man, I know what it's like to, to get my face kicked in the rec yard because of the color of my skin, or, or I couldn't sit on a certain row of benches in the day room simply because of the melanin I was born with. So for seven years and three months, I got to experience this real thing called racism. And so it gives me an opportunity, I think, and I think it is an opportunity, to have a conversation like that out here in the free world that not a lot of people that look like me, not a lot of white people, can have because that comes with the experience. I'll tell you another story about that. When I was walking out of prison, one of my cellmates that I had, he got him Sabor, black guy, Muslim guy. Um, he comes up to me on the way out. He's giving me a hug. We're hugging each other. We're real close. He's like a brother to me. And I talk to Sabor all the time on the phone. Take care of Sabor still. Sabor is asking me, he said, man, when you get out of here, because I'm about to walk out the gate. I'm on the way out of the door, you know. He's like, man, when you walk out of here, man, are you going to talk about the stuff you saw in here, the stuff we talked about when you're in here? And what Sabor wants to know, am I going to talk about the stuff that we talked about when I would listen and learn from Sabor about things like racism, about uh, the disparities in the system, about social justice. Because, I mean, you know, I grew up white, 
someone black is going to have to teach me that stuff. You grew up white Texas quarterback. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I've had every bit yeah. of favoritism and, and privilege you can imagine, but I'm learning from this guy because I'm in this world where, you know, I want to learn. Like I told you, going to all these corporations and talking, how crazy would it be if I didn't learn everything I could, every room I go into, like with y'all today. But I learned a lot from Sabor and other men around me of color. And Sabor wants to know, are you going to talk about that stuff when you get out of this prison? You know, when everybody can hear you, not just inside of our cell when we're talking to each other. And I'm like, man, Sabor, yeah, dude, get a, you know, let me get on my feet. I promise you. Let me get on my feet. I'll have these conversations. I promise you. And what Sabor said to me became a call to action in my life. His words hit me right between the eyes when he said, he said, good. He said, sometimes they lock up the right guy. Hmm. Sometimes they lock up the right I'm like, what do you mean? He said, look at you, West. He said, you're a white, middle-class, well-spoken, educated guy. A community's waiting for you out there. Because he saw the support that I had, you know. They're waiting for you out there. They're, they'd love you. They're going to, no matter what you've done, they're going to let you come back in. They'll listen to what you have to say. If you can tell them about the world in here, maybe you can change some of what's going on that, that causes all this, you know? And I've taken that very serious, man. That's a call to action. That's what like, a crazy thing to say. Like, what a cool perspective, kind of. Like, yeah. yeah. Think about I mean? that. But think about carrying that when you're walking out the door with your bags and your mattress. This is like the day that you've been waiting for. And now this guy hits you with, hey, you know, your life, it, it, your life is just starting for what you're about to do. If I can find the road, that's again with faith, but... I know that part of my mission in life is to have conversations. You heard from my presentation today that um, about the need to accept people of different backgrounds. You know, it's weaved in there. Sure. So it's not like I'm beating anybody over the head with this conversation about racism. Just by listening to the story, you're listening to a guy that said, hey, you know what? I'm going to rise above what everybody else is doing. I mean, by the way, in prison... All the races wanted to be about race. I can't say this enough. It's not just a white thing. It's a black thing, too. It's a Hispanic thing. Nobody wants to be around each other different races in there, or nobody accepts it to be around there. But when I'm telling my story, it's a chance for me to have this platform to show people that no matter what the circumstances are around us, we can rise above that, and we can become better and stronger together. You heard sprinkles of that stuff throughout the presentation about me saying that God can use any messenger to get through to you. You have to be receptive to all of God's messengers. And they're going to look different. You're going to talk different. You mm -hmm. come from different backgrounds. Mr. Jackson, who we talked about in you know the presentation that people don't even know about yet in the podcast, you know, I go through life, have all these opportunities. Um, you know, I was a stockbroker when I got introduced to meth. It took me about 18 months and living on the streets of Dallas. And um, then I commit, start committing crimes and become a, bur a burglar and the head of a burglary ring. That sure happened for you fast, too, by the way. Right? 18 Some months. people, yeah, they yeah. just have that thing where it gets them fast, you know? Addictive personality. I mean, I'm an addict. I'm truly an addict. And what I mean by an addict is addicts, real addicts like me, we have a three-part process that we go through. We have a thought. Let's say it's a thought to drink or do drugs. It becomes an obsession. Then it becomes physical. We put in. Thought, obsession, physical. Happens like that. Um, hmm. that's why living in a program recovery, like AA, I can, if I have a thought, I talk to somebody in the program, I tell them about it so I can get the thought out of my head. I have to get it out of my head, man. Otherwise it'll occupy space in there and consume me. But yeah, it happened fast. 18 months later, I'm living on the streets, I've got this raging meth habit, no funds, no job, no car, no home. And I, I started 
and become a criminal. And um, these crimes went on for three years. <clears throat> a bunch of burglaries. Sorry. A bunch of burglaries. We called them the up, they called them the Uptown Burglaries. And um, I was the ringleader of the Uptown Burglary Crimes, Crime Group. And um, when the Dallas SWAT team finally took me down on July 30th, 2008, that was the day I got sober, by the way. I got taken into sobriety at gunpoint. Um, when they do that, knowing like addicts and stuff like that and having, you know, just some experience with that, generally from, a, from the life that you were living from, you know, uh, working for a presidential candidate, a stockbroker introduced to meth one night, 18 months later being on the street, you would think you'd have to detox, but they don't take you to detox, right? Like they just kind of throw you in jail and let you sweat no. out and shake. Because <laughs> yeah, I, no I think of treatment programs and they're like, okay, they, they monitor you and they give you like medication and then they slowly flush it out of your system. But I've always had that, like to take someone like from what it sounds like you were and throw you in jail where you couldn't access the chemicals that your body had become addicted to. That had to have been pure health, right? Oh, it was very hard. I mean, like... There is no detox in, in county jail that I saw. I mean, they would drop off guys into your pod that are coming off heroin, man. I mean, they're, they're so you're just sweating and shaking and figuring oh, it out. These guys are passed out. Like, they're they're sleeping in the corner for days at a time, defecating themselves. They're puking Jeez. themselves, pooping on oh themselves, and peeing on themselves. And so every, that answers my question. No detox. <laughs> yeah, no detox. So I mean, yeah. They're like, what do you mean detox? <laughs> How yeah. long did that take you to get past that? To Man, I, I spent the first two weeks in county jail sleeping, man. My body was coming down. And the thing about meth is you're just going and going and going. I tried not to ever run out of meth for three years, man, because the minute you run out, you start coming down. And then it's like the fatigue that sets in is fast, and it's yeah. overwhelming. You've been redlining your body oh, that Yeah, it's redlining. I mean, it, it consumes you. Um, so I'm coming down. I'm eating everything in sight, honey buns, all kinds of stuff. I put on 65 pounds. <laughs> oh, my god! Yeah, this is not muscle weight. I'm not working out. I'm depressed. Well, and you were deprived of it before, right? You're not eating, like, yeah. when you're on meth, you're just going. Yeah, you're not eating a lot. Now, <clears throat> sorry, I didn't mean to cough on the mic. That's all right. Whenever I was doing meth, I was around a lot of other meth addicts, and I'm watching the people around me. They're deteriorating in front of, in front of me, and I don't, I'm a vain person. I don't want to look like that. I don't want to lose my teeth. I don't want skin yeah. that looks like it's peeling off my body. So it's crazy that even then, though, you still had like the presence because you think like, you I mean, you got yourself to a point where you're you're you've given up everything, but you still have the presence of mind to be like, listen, I'm an addict, but I don't want to look like that. Guy. Yeah, you would think yeah, that you would have <laughs> lost that sense. You know what I mean? <laughs> kind of like a. Uh, Rodney Dangerfield and Caddyshack. You know, talk about the hat. Oh, it looks good on you, though. Yeah. <laughs> that, for some reason, not in like a morbid way, but the presence of that particular addict, where you're like, yeah, I'm bad, but I don't want to be like Tom over here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that guy's cracked out. But that's the thing. I didn't want to lose. I didn't want to look like that. I didn't want yeah. to look like the people around me. So, you know, I got on the internet. Back then, it was there was no Google. It was like Yahoo, man. I'm like, what makes teeth fall out? And then there's you know lack of nutrients stuff like that. But saliva was one of the things I came to. When you when you stop producing saliva, saliva one of saliva's functions is it washes bacteria off your teeth all day long. But if you stop staying hydrated, you just quit producing saliva because your body's gonna have to get water from somewhere. So shut down the saliva gland, the salivary glands. And so everybody around me, I noticed, like, you're up for days at a time. You're not drinking. You're, you're dehydrated. Severely dehydrated is one of the things about being an addiction on meth. So, man, I, 
I just started carrying around a water, a gallon jug of water. People from back in the day that used to be around me or the dope houses or commit crimes, they would probably identify me as the guy that had the, the water jug, you know? So I'm, I'm walking around pounding water. Another thing is I'm forcing myself to eat. Because I love that you don't have the presence to like keep a job or a house, but that no, hydration, that's like, happening for you. I don't you. want to lose my teeth, so I'm going to But you're not worried about water. losing your job and every relationship you've ever had. Right. I, let, me, let me set a match to those, but let me keep my teeth. It's the craziest <laughs> so, thing. But you're in that world, and yeah. you become the people around you. Um, I would force myself to eat. I'd force myself to sleep. If I was up for more than two days, I'd put myself down. Xanax bars or smoke some weed or something like that. So you're a pretty highly functioning addict. like Yeah, I mean, it, and you have a preservation of life instinct in you mm -hmm. that if you don't get to a point where you can suppress that, because your preservation of life instinct is strong, man. But it also is tied to hope. You know, you can lose your preservation of life when you lose hope. Um, but... To me, I was going to be able to function in this world. I could be a burglar and I could have, you know, some semblance of a life. I, I mean, I couldn't be the guy my parents raised because I don't have a real job. And then anytime they called me, you know, like they knew something was wrong. Did, they, did you see your family at all? or Maybe four or five times during all this stuff. Did I they would, know what was going on? I'm sure they did. They right? had no idea what it was. They knew oh. something was wrong. They would call me up. I'm like, hey, man, what are you doing you know, for, for a job? I'm like, oh, I work for my buddy's internet company or my buddy's limo. I drive a limo. You know, it's like <laughs> I made up stuff. Yeah, and when so I couldn't make up stuff, I just didn't take their calls, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, they knew something was wrong. I'd visit very infrequently. I, the only time I would visit is when I had enough dope with me to make the round trip. You know, if I'm going to be gone from Dallas for four days, I got to have enough dope to stay up and be able to smoke it for four days. That's what your world revolves around. <laughs> it's funny, man. My mom's a nurse. so She understands addiction. And it's a disease. And she understands disease concepts as a nurse. My dad... My dad doesn't get it, man. To this day, he's like 80 years old, man. He's like, and he'll say things like, man, Damon, I don't know why you didn't just come home. Why didn't you just leave everything behind in Dallas, all the drugs yeah. and crime, and just come back and live? We got an extra room. You could have just lived with us. I'm like, As if it was about the space. Like, oh, I thought the house was full. Yeah. That's why I went to yeah. a life of crime and drugs. He's like, I'm like, well, Dad, that's a great idea. Why did I think of that? That's you crazy. You texted me. No. It's all. That's where you get all the logic from. Yeah, it's like, yeah, it's like, wow, I did all this for no reason. I had a room. I didn't so, even know. <laughs> so you go, so you're in, you, 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 you're the ringleader of a kind of this, this residential burglary syndicate. Yeah. And then, uh, you get, you, you got put in jail for a long time with, uh, an incredibly high bail, 1.4 yeah. million, $1. million dollar bond. Yeah. And so you're in there for 10 months and then came sentencing or the trial came sentencing the trial 65 years. Um, in the, it was a no-brainer for the jury. They went to deliberate for ten minutes, man. I mean, they had already their mind, their mind was made up on a bigger sentence, but they were told they couldn't give me that sentence because life without parole was not something I was eligible for because I didn't kill anybody, I didn't even hurt anybody. No one was even home. I never saw my victims. They never saw me. These are property crimes around drugs, man. And I get it, man. I didn't just steal people's property. I stole their sense of security. But sixty-five years was like on the extreme side of extreme. So they just, they wanted to give you the maximum allowable sentence. Yeah. And that was burglarizing some of the nicest parts of Dallas, man. So I was a very good guy to make an example of, too. Mm -hmm. um, and look, when they look at all the other people in the Uptown Burglary Crime, crime Crew, there's 12 of us, probably about a dozen of us, white, black, young, old, male, female. But everybody pretty much had the same backstory, but this one guy, this one guy that parents are still married, 
Division one college quarterback, worked in Congress, worked for a guy running for president, worked on Wall Street. This is our leader. Let's get this guy. And they were right. I was the leader of the whole crew. And um, and I got sentenced to 65 years. Mom and my dad, my mom and dad had this conversation with me right after the trial. And my mom gives me this ultimatum, no gangs, no tattoos. Come back as the man we raised or don't come back at all. And honestly, I don't have any idea how I'm gonna deliver on this because everybody's telling me in county jail, it's all about race. You know, you have to get into a gang. You won't survive without a gang. But there was this one guy, Mr. Jackson, this old black guy, and he shares with me one day what prison's gonna be like. And he's telling me about the racial dynamic. You're gonna fight the white gangs first because you're white. Then it'll be the black gangs if you survive the white gangs. And after that, you'll earn the right to walk alone. And then he shared with me the story of the coffee bean. And that's when he told me to imagine prison as a pot of boiling water. And he said, you have three choices of how you're gonna respond to this pot of boiling water. You give me like the carrot that becomes soft in boiling water, an egg that becomes hardened in the boiling water, or a coffee bean which changes the pot of boiling water into a pot of coffee. And he's telling me everything else is changed by the water. Carrots are changed by the water, eggs are changed by the water, but a coffee bean is the only thing that will change the water because it is the change agent, which by the way is the name of my first book, my autobiography, The Change Agent. And that's what I had to become. He said, if you want to come out of this experience as someone your parents recognize, then you have to change the pot of boiling water into a pot of coffee. You got to change the prison around you. But the thing is, though, he didn't tell me how to do that. He didn't tell me how to be a coffee bean. That was up for me to figure out how to be a coffee bean. And I'm telling you, man, when I got to prison, two months of straight violence and losing most of my fights, I was angry. I was becoming the egg. I was one of the hallmarks of being an egg is being mad. Anger, man. Anger is like a hallmark of being an egg. I was mad at everybody. I was mad at God. I was mad at Mr. Jackson. <laughs> this you give me this fable about this carrots egg and the coffee bean but you forgot to mention how the hell i'm supposed to become a coffee bean yeah fights hurt man. yeah it's like man <laughs> throw me a bone here jackson yeah. but but the idea is that you know he knows that i'm going to this pot of boiling water i asked him you know what would i find more of in there without hesitation he tells me you're going to find more eggs um and he says the egg is the natural evolution of any human being inside of any difficult situation and you think about that that's I mean, so true in life. You see people go through adversity, and what do they do? They become bitter. They become mad. They become uh, abrasive. They want to fight, you know. But the thing about being the egg is that that can that can consume you really quickly, and it's okay to be the egg. It's not okay to get stuck there. And so I had to find a way out of being stuck, and it all had to be with changing the way I think. And that mm-hmm. was the. That was a big thing for me. When I, when I could change the way I, I was thinking, I could change all the other things that come with it because thoughts come before actions. Yeah. How do you, just a question is like, thinking about that, I, I love the analogy when I heard it from Ed Milet and you told the story. I just was wondering if you're in a situation and just talking to like our teens and our, our, our sales professionals, um, like how do you become self-aware to identify where you're at? You know, like what would you recommend as far as how do you know if you're being coming the carrot, the egg, or the coffee bean? Obviously, self-awareness is a big thing, but I feel like we lack it a lot of times in our life. We don't actually care to have self-awareness. We think we're aware, but we're really not aware of like our actions. So what advice would you give us to become self-aware, to know where we're at, and then how to change? Yeah, great question. Here's, here's the answer I have for that. Traffic. Sit in traffic. Watch, monitor yourself in traffic. <laughs> That's a great answer. <laughs> Some days traffic bothers you. You're going bananas. I'm thinking about going across the Bay Bridge and how I get to the airport. The traffic's going to be bad in rush hour, right? Some days traffic bothers you. Other days you sit in traffic and it doesn't bother you. 
So is it the traffic or is it you? And the answer is it's always you. It's always going to be you. It's, it's the way you think, the way you see the world around you. You know, position determines perspective. Three, my, three of my favorite words together. Position determines perspective. Where you are and where you've been determines the world you see. But traffic is kind of like my gauge to see, hey, how are you right now, Damon? Because if I'm getting mad in traffic some days and not mad every day, there's something wrong with me. In recovery, or if we have the soft and just getting pushed around in traffic, you're like, I'm such a freaking carrot right now. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's just taking it out on me. I'm too. rarely a carrot in traffic. Just, you got your I'm rarely a carrot in traffic. <laughs> but but yeah, man. Uh, but yeah, position determines perspective, man. And I mean, like you've got to be able to to regulate yourself and monitor that. But you got to be honest with yourself, and you got to say, hey, you know what? I'm going to be able to check myself when I feel like I'm, you know, not thinking the right way. Thinking is everything, man. Your thoughts control everything. And, mm-hmm. and so who are you? We have this axiom in recovery. Um, whenever I'm disturbed, there's something wrong with me. Whenever I'm disturbed, something's wrong with me. That means every problem that I have in life, if I have a problem with something, I play a role somewhere in that problem. And that's what I have to figure out. What role do I play in that problem? Because if I can figure that out, that's the one thing I can change. That's the one thing I can affect. That's the thing I can control. My role in all my problems. And that's what I got to figure out what my role is in all my problems. I think there's two things there that are, that's a, that's a hard thing to give like a tangible answer to. And I think you did it in two ways. Traffic scenario is cool because there's yeah. stress or pressure on you. I've, I've long held this idea that if there's a judgment someday, that I think people will be judged primarily on how they behaved while at the airport. It's like you're the worst version <laughs> oh of yourself God, at I'm the airport. <laughs> Think about it. Your your this schedule your schedule's more important than everybody else's. You've got to get to the how did you behave at the wow. airport? Same thing. But you also said, you know, if I'm affected right now, how did you say it? If I'm if I'm affected, it's it's something's wrong with me. Something like oh, that. Oh, when I when I'm disturbed. When I'm disturbed, me. something's wrong with me. And I was just thinking, um, last night at my house, so I told you I have six kids. Sunday night is hard for me. It's the end of the week, man, and a lot of times I've been with them all day. They're tired and a crappy version of themselves at 7 o'clock on a Sunday night. And me too. And last night I was visibly affected. And so it's really easy to say, oh, my kids are being such turds right now. Or like, they're, they're, I'm so stressed out. Or, you know, I'm thinking about starting the day Monday. we got this big conference. But to be able to be like, what is that? Okay, I'm disturbed. That's me. What yeah. can I do? It's very empowering, right? It's Absolutely. very empowering because you can start to think, they're just kids, man. Like they're just excited. They haven't seen you for a week. You know what I mean? Or it turns into, ah, you know, like pure chaos. But I really appreciate the tangible answer there. Um, so you mentioned Mr. Jackson before you go into the prison system and, um, you know, the story about the coffee bean. Talk about uh, the fights, not necessarily the fights you got into, but his advice about fighting. That was one of the main things I took away from uh, before seeing you today and you reinforced it in your conversation. I think it's really applicable to everybody, but especially people that do a leadership and sales jobs about fights and winning fights. 100%. He says that you don't have to win all your fights, but you do have to fight all your fights. Very important distinction to understand because you're going to lose some of your fights in life. In fact, I would argue that you lose a lot of fights in life, you know, because the wins, you know, the wins come, but you get knocked down a lot and it's about getting back up. And that's what it really, what he's telling me. It's okay to get knocked down, just get back up. You know, it's like someone says, get knocked down eight times, get up nine. So that's what he's telling me. You don't have to win all your fights, but you do have to fight all your fights. And man, 
that couldn't come at a better time for me to walk into that prison because I'm going into an impossible situation. I can't, I can't beat these people up. I'm, I wasn't a, a fighter. They're, seas, they're professional fighters, professional pretty much. Fight, it's yeah. what they do. Violence yeah. is their their stock and trade. Yeah. That's what they do. Violence that have worked out every day for twenty years. I'm sure. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah, they, and, yeah. And that's and but this is what they do. I mean, they see a new guy come in, they beat the hell out of him. And that's their job. I mean, that's not my job. And they're good at their job. Yeah. Very good. Very good. <laughs> yeah. They're very good. So if, if that could be a, a job performance uh, review I could give, yeah. That was you've effective five, violence. You've got five stars. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but but knowing that, that's been something I've kept with me forever. I get knocked down so much. Me being in, in the speaking circuit like I am, when I started doing this, people never told me yes. I mean, it, I had to beg people for let me, let me come in. When I first got out of prison, great story for you about salespeople. So... When I first get out of prison, no one let me come speak to their schools or anything like that. I just got out of prison, man. You can't knock on the door of a high school or junior high and say, hey, I just got out of the joint. I want to talk to your kids. You know, they may lock you back up. So it took me a while to find somebody to believe in me, a cop and a judge first believed in me. And they would take me in as like a program they set up to bring Damon West in to talk to the kids. Kind of like a warning about the dangers of drugs, the consequences of bad decisions, a message of hope. Um, but in that period there, for the first two or three months I was out of prison, I had nowhere to go. I was miserable. I, mean, I was letting this, the outside pressures of the world, being the ex-con, trying to adapt to a new world, it was starting to affect, I was becoming the egg. My sponsor in AA, we're working through the 12 steps one day, about a month out of prison, and he comes up to me at the meeting, he says, you're about to go back to prison, Damon. That got my attention, that focused me quick. I'm like, what do you mean? We'll call him Ray, to protect his anonymity. What do you mean, Ray? He said, well, you're stuck inside yourself. He said, no one can work a program recovery inside their self. And if you're inside yourself as an addict, you're going to get, you're going to put in and you're going back. And I was like, man, what do you want me to do, man? There's, I mean, and I can't go anywhere. No what one do, wants What do you mean by that? Just maybe you're stuck inside yourself. Maybe elaborate on that a little yeah, bit. Yeah. Being inside yourself is like when you, you don't see anything else around you. You're, you're so self-absorbed with what's going on inside you. Oh, my problems are this and my problems are that. That's being stuck inside yourself. When right. like... In a meeting one time, I heard somebody say that if we could all go into a, if we could all take our problems out and go throw them onto a pile and go up to that pile and we could pick up someone else's problems, we'd probably go grab our own problems. I again. completely Once agree. Once you see what everybody else is carrying around, you're like, give me mine back and I'll be quiet over here. <laughs> yeah. That's being inside self. Being inside self is carrying that problem around, like, oh, look at me, you know. And I'm telling you, man, I, you know, what do you want me to do? I can't, you know, I can't belong anywhere. I can't fit in. I'm an ex-con, and uh, he said, "Nah." He said, "Now it's self-pity. Now you're really in trouble. Now it's that whole self-pity. Poor me. Uh, these are dangerous things for most people. But for an addict, they're very dangerous." And so he says, "Hey, look, man, go to a senior citizen center. Go volunteer. Spend your weekends there. Spend time with people that hadn't had a visitor in ten years. You know, just go to the desk. Go to the front desk and ask for a list of people who never get visitors. You're not the kind of felon that they won't give that list to. They'll be happy to give it to you. Go spend your time visiting with people who." Don't give visitors. You lived in a world where it's lonely. Go bring some hope to them. And that's what I did. I started doing that. That became my service work project. And why I said this is so effective for sales, because in sales, you live in this high-pressure world where you have to perform. You get to, you get to eat what you kill, right? And that's, that's great, you know? But you need to pull away from that and unwind and go out and do service work. You have to find ways to put back into this world. Mm -hmm. You can't just be a taker. Uh, one of my favorite quotes is that the bee fertilizes the flower that it robs. The bee fertilizes the flower that it robs. That's servant leadership, man. That's even in, in nature, man. Nature says, hey, 
you know what? You can come grab some of this pollen, Mr. B, but you got to drop some of that off on the flowers that you're about to fly by because that's the way we work in nature. We don't just take. You have to give and put back in. And so we're go- when we go against nature, we're going against the idea that we have to serve others. That's what we're here for. Everybody's here to be a servant leader because that's what we're all about. Servant leadership is the secret to life. That's amazing. Um, I wish we could hang out here. You have a flight to catch. We want to be mindful of that. Um, traffic. I traffic. Traffic. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know how you're going to show up in traffic, traffic today, but I want to get you there. <laughs> and airports. And traffic. Airports. airports. Hey, be on your best behavior today, man. <laughs> you're especially you're wearing coffee bean stuff. People know you. It's going to be a thing. It um, happens to me sometimes. People are like, oh, you're the coffee bean guy. I'm oh, like, really? It's going to happen more and more. It's going to happen more and more. But the book is Be a Coffee Bean. How to Be a Coffee Bean. How to Be a Coffee Bean. You got a new version of it coming out Wednesday. Yeah. Um, and Which y'all might have helped me get to the bestseller list today. Hey, man. Everybody to pulled out their phones, He was a great sales pitch. He finished the thing and said, hey, I'm trying to be a bestseller. Buy my book. And everyone's like, yep, doing it. But here's the cool thing. Um, you know, again, I mentioned my kids, and we all, a lot of us have kids. I love that there's a kid's version of How to Be a Coffee Bean, and my kids will be reading that too. It's such a, it's such a valuable concept, and I, especially, I think, for people just starting to wrap their head around it or for kids just to understand that you have control. Like even this idea that you don't have to win every fight, but you do have to fight every fight. There's oddly some peace in that, right? Like I would say the same thing to people aspiring to do anything. Listen, you don't have to sell every person that you talk to, but you do have to talk to them, right? And you don't have to not make mistakes when you're building teams or a business, but you do have to try. You don't have to make every, you know, song you make doesn't have to be a masterpiece, but you have to sing. You know what I mean? Like humans can do that. Inputs we can handle it's outcomes that stress us out. And I think if we're focused on inputs, like your story, and I would encourage people to listen to the Ed Milet podcast uh, with Damon West. You tell the full story there and it's great. Um, you know, if you're listening and you do, uh, you know, you hosted groups, the speech you gave today was captivating. It was an hour and a half of like infusing energy and just solid principles into our people. So we really appreciate that and encourage people to, to take that opportunity to book you. But it is a message ultimately, not just hope, but it's really tactical. Like I can employ these things, right? Like we can go knock doors and lead tomorrow and be in with a little less stress and a little bit more of a deliberate headspace. And that's kind of what you deposited with our group today. So thank you for doing that. Thank you for everything you said. And I want to leave y'all with one more deposit because it's sales. Sales people are my, I, I love sales groups. This is like my wheelhouse. Here's the thing. Every sale can be, it can be a victory. And what I mean by that is like every door-to-door sales is great. Here's why, because you're gonna experience a lot of different people and you're gonna get a lot of rejection. This is good because with every rep, you get better at what you do. And that's the thing about getting in reps, man. You know, reps are ugly sometimes. It's like that workout in the gym. You know, there's gonna be farting, there's gonna be grunting, there's gonna be that. But you only get better when you get more reps in and you can't get better without getting more reps. So when you go out and knock on these doors and, and you're not failing when you don't get in, you may learn a way to not sell this product. You may learn a way to not, to not pitch this idea. That's what you're getting out of it. But you have to be receptive to the idea that everything is a teacher in life. You know, but you gotta get in the reps. You have to be willing to put in the work. Whenever I got out of prison, one last little nugget about this, where there was nobody bringing me in to speak. This is like, you know, first 18 months out of prison. I didn't get to speak in a lot of places. But in my parents' spare bedroom where I lived, there was a mirror. And if I wasn't speaking somewhere, which is most days, I was in front of that mirror every single day practicing the presentation you heard today. Every single day, I got in at least one rep 
one presentation. I didn't have an audience. I had a mirror. And I got to practice my presentation. That way, when I finally got that opportunity in front of Dabo Sweeney, 14 months out of prison, my, my presentation was pitched and yeah. ready to go. And that is what it's all about, man. Get in those reps. And what I'm saying is, is that when you come home from the end of the day and you've, you've had these some successes, some failures, you know, sit back and reflect on what worked and what didn't. Practice your pitch in front of a mirror. Practice it in front of your spouse, a friend, whatever. Get in reps. You don't have to be going door to door to get your rep in. Practice, man. If this is your career and you're going to make a living out of this, would you, you could, I've heard some of the numbers of this. You can make a great living doing mm-hmm. this. Practice at it. Be the best you can be at it, man. Put everything into it. Because that's when we really find out what we're, what we're made of. And yeah. we, we put everything into this, what we have. Well, and I think the cool thing about that, too, is not only does your, your capacity and your expertise increase, but your confidence does, too. You feel like you deserve it. So when your situation, you know, with Dabo shows up, it's not like you're like, hey, I, I'm really good at speaking. It's like, hey, I've prepared for this. I've knocked so many doors. I've gotten so many no's. I've earned this. I deserve this. And when people show up like that, they're yeah. happy to give you a microphone and say, hey, share. Absolutely. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Growth follows belief. And people will believe in you after you believe in yourself. And that in sales, believing in yourself comes across in every single pitch you have. You have to believe in yourself first. Be a coffee bean. That's it, brother. Thank you so much for sharing with us. This is super fun. You've given a lot of your soul today, so thank you very much. Thanks, guys. It was great to be on the street street today, man. There it is. If you're listening to this and interested in joining our teams, DM us on Instagram at runtheleague. What are you waiting for? Run the league, shoot us a DM, and let's get going.